John Glazer. My guest today is Peter Beinart. He writes a newsletter on Substack called The Beinart Notebook. Good to talk with you again, Peter. Welcome back. My pleasure. So we've recently passed the one-year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul back to the Taliban. I wonder if you can just kind of look back and review the U.S. withdrawal, what was right and wrong about how it was done and so on. Gosh, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm entirely qualified to do that, to be honest, because um, there, uh, it's clear that the Biden administration didn't plan uh, as well as it should have. Um, but it's, there's also, as you know, a, a controversy about to what degree they could have begun the withdrawal process early without kind of creating this chaos that emerged once you, you know once the people once people in Afghanistan realized the U.S. was starting to leave. So I, I think, to be honest, it's it's beyond my competence to be able to kind of lay out an alternative. I would very much like to believe that the United States could have done more preparatory work um, that would have allowed us to not have such a chaotic situation at the end, particularly when, uh, as it regards getting Afghans who worked with the United States out, um, uh, as well as Americans. But I'm also inclined to be skeptical of those who say that had the U.S. just stayed a bit longer, that ultimately there wouldn't have been this disastrous and chaotic ending. It seems to me that there's very little to believe very little to make one believe that if the U.S. had stayed for another year, that then the Afghan government would have been able to sustain itself once we left. Yeah, we heard that argument uh, a trillion times over the 20-year conflict. Uh, it seemed that the withdrawal and how it all unfolded did seem to draw a lot of fervor when it happened. But Americans, I think a year on, mostly seem to have forgotten about it. Uh, including those who are making kind of impassioned pleas on humanitarian grounds. That compassion seems to have been rather short-lived. And there were some security-related arguments against withdrawal. Um, you know, some people saying that there was a risk of al-Qaeda regrouping there and the threat of a safe haven. Um, and Biden did, of course, recently order an airstrike which killed Ayman al-Zawahiri. But it's not clear to me the security threat from Afghanistan has increased. Do you have thoughts on those arguments and also about the fact that withdrawal hasn't uh, precluded us from taking military action in Afghanistan still? I think the strongest argument for staying was a humanitarian argument. It's not an argument that was convincing to me. And I, I, I think it was not an unambiguous argument by any means because the U.S. presence also um, created a lot of violence. Um, I think that what's what seems to have happened in Afghanistan now is that the the place Afghanistan um, is more repressive than it was, uh, or these in in cities where the government was holding sway, you now have a more repressive government. So that has terrible consequences for people who are opponents of the Taliban, or for women and girls, and for people who are just independent minded. Um, on the other hand life may actually be more peaceful, um, uh, in particularly in rural areas where there was a lot of fighting, um, uh, because now at least you have one government that has control of the territory. So you have a, a kind of, uh, uh, so it, it's, um, um, but I, I think that from the perspective of some Afghans, um, 
uh, a continued U.S. presence would have been better. I think the the security argument I think is is weaker. Um, that when one look, it, it's it's true now that it's turned out that the Taliban ha- were willing, or people associated with the Taliban were willing to in, invite uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri back into Afghanistan. But we all, the United States also showed that actually it could take military action against him without having troops on the ground. Um, and I think for me, one of the big lessons that we've learned, you know, we've had 20 years now after September 11th, is, is that once the United States began taking homeland security more seriously after September 11th, it simply became much, much more difficult for any terrorist organization um, to carry out anything approaching that kind of logistical operation on American soil. It doesn't mean that there couldn't be a radicalized American but watching videos over the internet um, who, could, who, could, who could shoot a few people. And by the way, you know, that's only that's not just a phenomenon of of jihadist terrorism, right? We have people radicalized on the internet who are shooting people because they're white nationalists, or just because you know we have so many guns around that you can do it, you know, for all kinds of insane reasons, right? But that that the the centrality that we gave to the idea of a jihadist terrorist threat because of the experience of nine eleven was has, I think, been proven to be really out of proportion given the actual national security threats that America faces. Um, and so if you're thinking about allocating resources, and you know, I think the United States was spending you know, more than $100 billion in Afghanistan a year, given the enormous problems that the United States faces from, from climate change, from pandemics, great power competition, de- decaying of our infrastructure and all of our domestic problems, it seems to be very, very hard to argue that that $100 billion in Afghanistan was money well spent from a security perspective. Yeah, the security argument often rested on this notion of a territorial safe haven. And um, that makes sense given the context of how 9-11 happened. But uh, you know, there a, a territorial safe haven in remote landlocked Afghanistan doesn't provide terrorist groups with a with an obvious tactical or strategic advantage in carrying out transnational terrorist attacks. So, so that was never too um, persuasive. I, I, I want to just take a quick right. step no, back. No, right, nor back. is it the only safe, safe haven that, that exists around the world, right? I mean, if you really were committed to making sure there was no space of territory where you could, you know, operate, you'd also be having to do, you know, you'd have to be getting much more involved in Places in West Africa, the Sahel, for instance. So Afghanistan is not is not alone in that. In that, go ahead. Exactly. Now I was just going to take a step back and and um, you know on this withdrawal, it does seem that Biden could have executed it much better than he did. I mean, I can tell I was working much more closely on these issues back then with my Cato colleagues. I was urging the administration back in March or April of last year, talking to officials in the National Security Council, uh, staffers on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and so on, that they had better get their act together on, you know, evacuations and refugee resettlement and to expect some kind of security mess as we withdrew. And it felt like there was a kind of bureaucratic paralysis, or perhaps it was overload. There was certainly a lot going on then for the administration. But if it was merely a lack of kind of coordination among federal agencies, I mean, I know you said you didn't have much to say on this, but 
what kind of problem is that? I mean, it's just kind of, is, is it just kind of hard to move a behemoth like the national security state? What's, what's a constructive policy insight that we can draw from that? I, I really don't know. You know, maybe it's the fact that I myself have not worked in government. And so I don't see the kind of the, the, the sausage that's being made. I don't know, to be fair to them, you know, how much of this was the, the company, you know, that the, the Trump administration had so kind of disemboweled, you know, some of these mechanisms that you needed. You also had COVID, which made, you know, which gummed up the works a lot, but I don't want to let them off the hook. I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, there, um, this was a, um, there, there was, there was a really shameful element to this. And I also think that it's, um, you know, again, I also think it reflected the politics. I mean, we remember that there was this kind of, the Biden administration, at least in theory, was open to trying to let Afghans into the United States, those who had supported the United States. The the many Republicans, by contrast, made these arguments that I think were really, really hideous, which basically said that even Afghans who would risk their lives in the United States or who were working for the very liberal democratic values that we claim to cherish, should not be allowed in the United States because simply their Afghanness or their proximity to people in Afghanistan who 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 might have been Taliban, even though in fact these people were endangered from the Taliban, meant that they shouldn't they shouldn't be able to come to the United States. So that I think also created a bit of a political obstacle. In a piece on your Substack recently, you asked a, a deeper question, which was not how the war was carried out or how the withdrawal went, but should we have had this war in the first place? Can you talk a little about that? Yes. Um, you know, I supported the invasion of of, uh, of Afghanistan. It was, as you remember, it was um, it was not a very controversial position to take. I mean, there were there were a significant number of people who were critical to their credit and opposed to the war in Iraq. The number of people who were opposed to America's intervention in Afghanistan was very, very small. Um, and in a way, in a, in a strange way, I think politically, the emergence of the Iraq war actually tended to solidify people's support for the war in Afghanistan. One of the points I tried to make in the Substack was that the political dynamic was such that the kind of the terms of legitimate debate were essentially between people who supported both wars, um, uh, uh, which was almost all Republicans and a lot of Democrats, and a smaller group of people on the left in the Democratic Party who opposed the war in Iraq and often were very vociferous about their support for the war in Afghanistan, um, Barack Obama being, you know, prime among them, who argued essentially that one of the big problems with the war in Iraq was that it took our eye off the ball in Afghanistan, which was where al-Qaeda had been. And I also think there was a clear political motive there, which was to say, you you can't call me a pacifist. You can't call me a George McGovern type because although I oppose the war in Iraq, I actually support this other war in Afghanistan. And to me, in retrospect, and again, I speak as someone who was um, uh, guilty in, you know, of being part of this mainstream consensus, what strikes me in retrospect is that what was considered politically respectable, and also what was, I think, considered ideologically respectable in foreign policy discourse, in retrospect, turns out to have been wrong policy-wise, that, that 
that that the 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 it was only that the it was only people on the really the ideological extremes, you know, people who were especially in the atmosphere after 9-11 would have been were very easily dismissed and ridiculed, kind of like, you know, Noam Chomsky types, let's say, you know, Ron Paul types, you know, kind of people who were just considered the 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 lunatic isolationists, you know, who in retrospect were saying, actually, both of these wars are pretty problematic. Um, um, I mean, maybe Afghanistan, we had, a, a, a you know, we weren't, the, the Afghanistan was not fueled by lies as much, right? We, we did, had actually been hit from that territory, but, but still that even though maybe we had more of a moral justification, that actually it was still a pretty unwise thing to do. Um, and I think, um, now there was this, there was the, the, in, you know, there was a question of how you would have retaliated against al-Qaeda without overthrowing the the regime in Afghanistan and getting yourself into a war against the Taliban. I don't think that was, that's not a simple question. Um, and it might have, but, uh, um, but I do think that the insight that I certainly did not have back then that I think is easy to see in retrospect, and I wish I had had at the time, was to be able to understand that as odious as the Taliban was, and as much as there were many people in Afghanistan who really didn't like the Taliban, partly for, you know, there were sectarian divisions and there were also there were many people in Afghanistan, especially in the cities who didn't like to be ruled that way, that there is a power in nationalism, in fighting against an occupying army, that means that if you were in the position of having created a government and propping it up, fighting against a nationalist movement, a movement that can harness the power of nationalism, that even if that movement um, is really odious, it's still going to likely be extremely difficult to defeat. And I think that one of the things about that moment, as you'll remember, was there was a strong tendency to, to frame things in terms of kind of freedom on the one hand, the forces of freedom and democracy on the, on, on the one hand, versus the four, the you know, the, the Islamo-fascists or the kind of new totalitarians or whatever you were calling these groups, right? And I think, and, and, and Al-Qaeda and Taliban were lumped together because they both had this deeply illiberal ide- uh, version of Islamist ideology. And I think that this, in retrospect, I think is part of the mistake that Americans often make. Um, it was part of the same reason that we, we tended to see policymakers saw the Viet Cong and the government in Hanoi as communist and couldn't recognize that its power was actually nationalist. I think we see this with China today, right? There's still this focus on on you know what makes the Chinese tick? Well, it's because they're communists. It's because they're anti-democ, they're anti-democratic, and they're illiberal. Those things are all true, but actually, I think in understanding how they behave and why they have power and why they sustain their power, it has a lot more to do with Chinese nationalism. And what I think, you know, to me, the irony, one of the ironies of American foreign policy in this era and previously, is that. We're a pretty darn nationalistic country, and our nationalism is often pretty illiberal, right? And yet, and we understand its power, right? I mean, let me give you like a, a, here's a kind of a loony analogy, right? I hate Donald Trump, right? I, I mean, I really, really hate Donald Trump, right? But if Trump were to come back into power, God forbid, right? And then a group of foreign countries toppled him, right? Overthrew him 
installed Pete Buttigieg as president, who I like a lot more. And we all of a sudden had a lot of Norwegian peacekeepers, you know, patrolling the U.S. Capitol to sustain the Buttigieg administration and then going out into the hinterland doing these raids where they spoke to Norwegian and one another and they broke into American homes in order to ferret out the, the, the Trump supporters. Even I would be pretty ambivalent about this, right? And we can pretty easily see that a lot of most Americans, probably including a lot of Americans who really don't like Donald Trump, would all of a sudden find themselves with a very hostile view of, of, of the, and I think that that's one thing that I think in retrospect comes becomes clear about Afghanistan and something that I think we need to really try to be more aware of in the future. Yeah, it's an interesting irony that, um... It's almost like our own nationalism blinds us to the fact of other people's nationalism. Exactly, um, exactly. And that's one of the main insights that you that you pointed to in the piece. The other one, though, was to, you know, if we if we're looking at Afghanistan, we're considering our failures and how to avoid them in the future. Pay attention to the powers of nationalism, but also listen to voices outside the foreign policy mainstream. Can you tease that one out? Yeah, I think. You know, you you know all about this. Um, there are certain parameters of, of of conversation on any given subject. They're often defined by where the debates are between the two parties, right? So, kind of, if you're within the debate between you know the two parties, you're kind of you know that's considered a kind of res respectable, reasonable debate. If you're if you're taking a position that's held by by the leaderships or the mainstreams of neither party. Right. You're already inclined to be a, to be looked at as a little bit of a weirdo. Right. And then there are other institutions that I think support that, whether they're, you know, think tanks in Washington, you know, um, which ones with some of which might be considered a bit more hawkish and others a little more dovish or media outlets, you know, and these institutions, again, as you know, every, you know, even perhaps as well as me or better is those institutions don't do policy separate from politics. The, the two are very much intertwined, right? So the question of what's a respectable policy position is also linked into kind of the sense of what you can gain political support for. And that may be political support in the country, but often it may also be political support in, in inside uh, a kind of certain elite, because sometimes the, actually what's interesting about public opinion is sometimes public opinion does actually fall more outside these margins than you tend to find in elite conversation. And foreign policy discussion tends to be more elite driven than domestic policy conversation and often can be more isolated from where American public opinion is. And so I think that, and again, I think, you know, this question of nationalism also comes up as well, because, you know, this is a point that, you know, people like Chomsky have been making for decades and decades, which is to say, if you take the position that a certain American policy is a mistake or an error, that's considered to be a, a position that's more assimilable. But if you take the larger view that maybe America is not a force for good, period, or maybe what we're doing is actually a crime, right? Or, or actually that we are no better than our enemies in this particular set of ways. Those are just more difficult things to assimilate. Now, you know, again, you can probably get away with that at university campuses and a lot of places. But the closer you get to the institutions of power, I think the harder it is to assimilate those perspectives. And I think that this often creates a dynamic where certain policies that really deserve more serious discussion in the halls of power don't because they're, they, they fall too far there, you know, the conversation is within the 40 yard line, to use a football metaphor, the 30 yard line. And if you're taking a position that's at the 10 yard line, 
it just gets dismissed, you know, and it doesn't have the kind of institutional force that would bring it into public discussion. So, you know, one of the examples I gave in the in the piece was that it took a very long time for it to be a respectable position, even among doves, to say that the U.S. should have a full unilateral unconditional withdrawal from Vietnam, right? The dovish, the, the hawkish position was escalate, you know, so we can get the best deal. And the dovish position was um, don't escalate anymore, maybe even do certain modest withdrawals as part of a negotiating process, right? But even, you know, when you're talking about Eugene McCarthy's running against Lyndon Johnson as, as the peace candidate in, in 1968, it's still, we're still not at the point where someone like that can say, you know what, nothing, we're just, we're, we're nothing good is going to come of this. We should bite the bullet and accept the, the, the pain and the humiliation of this now, rather than after we've sacrificed more Americans more Vietnamese have been killed. We spent more money, right? And I think that this was the situation I think we had with Afghanistan, which is I think that there were, it, it took a long time to, to, for it to become a mainstream position uh, that, that the U.S. Should, should, be, should get out. And I think that there were people who, do, who, were, who had come to that realization much earlier, um, uh, and, and, but who were not listened to for many, many years. You know, we had the whole, Obama period where Obama was going through this conversation. And I think it's been a while since I looked at this literature, but my memory is that from, from what I read about it is that it wasn't exactly as if Obama was real. You know, Obama came in and said, we're going to do this really big review, right? And I don't think it's as if the arguments that America could actually turn the tide in Afghanistan were ever really convincing. I'm not sure they were ever really convincing to Obama, but Obama was kind of in some ways locked in by certain assumptions that he, you know, the influence of the American military and all the political dynamic, not, you know, the situation Democrats are always in and not wanting to be considered to be soft uh, and, and weak. And I think this is, I think we need only to think about it. And again, obviously Cato was an institution that that tries to get outside this paradigm, but but um, there are not enough others, I think, um, that to try to create a situation where where, where voices that are outside the mainstream, at least get a, a more reasonable hearing. They may not always be right, but that at least they get a more reasonable hearing, they get more airtime, they get on the op-ed pages more. And so those arguments are ones we grapple with more. Yeah, it's very interesting. This troublesome linkage between politics and policymaking is interesting. Um, you know, it, it might have made good strategic sense and saved us a world of trouble if after 9-11 we took a more policing action towards al-Qaeda, uh, maybe punish the Taliban regime. But, you know, doing that and then leaving probably was not politically digestible. Uh, they wanted a bigger war, a bigger enemy, a longer effort. Yes. And then I think about the surge, as you mentioned, and how much right. could have been saved if Obama had pulled out. You know, the standard story, as you pointed out, is he had to kind of double down on Afghanistan um, to get hawkish credibility because he wanted to withdraw from Iraq. Um, it seems a real pity that, you know, the real reason we had to go through another 12, 11, 12 years of war, really pointless war, was not for the reasons stated by our leaders. It wasn't fulfilling a security threat. It wasn't about enabling democracy to spread in Afghanistan. It wasn't about any of that. Afghanistan had to get pummeled for another dozen years because American politics and policymaking was and is very, very broken. And uh, old ideas that tend to drive us uh, are not scrutinized. 
Yes, yes. And and I mean, that's connected to the fact that, you know, this is a point that many other people have made that we also don't have some kind of, we, we don't really have like a learning process that I think then influence shapes the public debate, right? So, you know, one of the things that's really frustrating to me, I, I mean, it's probably frustrating to you is that you, if you're a hawk on Iran, right? Okay, you're a hawk on Iran. You think America needs to threaten military force, maybe even go to war against Iran. But if you take that, I mean, if you were also very hawkish on Iraq and very hawkish on Afghanistan, right? And very hawkish, let's say, on Libya, right? All of which didn't turn out very well. It seems to me that when, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a voice at the, sit, a seat at the table. Okay, you get your interview, right? But it seems to me there should be a mechanism by which you don't, you have to explain why this is different, right? Explain why those experiences should not lead us to the view that actually another war in the Middle East is probably not likely to turn out well, right? It seems like in many other aspects of life or institutions, like there's, you try to have some learning process by which you, you and, and it seems to me we have, especially when you're on the hawkish side, th th it's this kind of way in, in which kind of history starts over again when you propose a new military action that you want, right? And that also the, those folks who, who were right, right, um, who might have tended views that would be more outside the mainstream, we say, well, you might say, okay, like, let's look at those people who were right on Afghanistan um, and Iraq and say, let's let's make sure that this time on the, when now we're the debating war with Iran, that that we give those people a little more of a voice because they have a, a good, pretty good track record, right? Um, I'm not saying doves can never be wrong, but it's just to me that would be a healthy way. And I would imagine in some other functioning institutions, like you would try to do that to maximize the chances that you're going to get it right the next time. And, and yet that I think is not the case, right? So you're if you're Lindsey Graham or someone like this, right? Or John Bolton, right? You just, you just, ushered up in for the next conversation, you say essentially the same ideological template that you've been imposing on all these other situations. And, and you never really even have to feel, you never have to explain what you learned or if you learned anything from the last situation. I think that's, I don't really entirely understand, honestly, why that's so much the case. Um, but I do think that it's, um, um, you're, I, I, one of the things, I haven't lived in Washington for a while, but one of the things that did strike me, I, I haven't really been, it's not, I'm not one of these people who like has spent a lot of time kind of briefing politicians on foreign policy issues. But in the few times that I, I was privy to those kind of conversations, one of the things that often struck me about it was the way in which politicians would either say to foreign policy wonks, either explicitly or it was kind of implicitly, give me a policy that I can sell politically. You know, it was either like you either say that explicitly, like, how am I going to message this? Or implicitly, the idea was like, if you're going to be useful to me, you can't just tell me what you think. Like, you got to tell me something that like is going to work for me politically. And I always thought like, I remember what being as a journalist, like listen, watching some of these, like, this doesn't make sense. Like these foreign policy people are not political strategists. Like, why are they even in that game? And it naturally just shuts down some of the most interesting. I mean, why not just ask them what the heck they think? And then if you don't think you can win an election, then that's on you or you could whatever. But like, I feel like this is a dynamic that I've noticed. And I mean, maybe partly because also one of the things I write about a lot is Israel-Palestine, you know, where the, the, you know, where there's a rather severe disjunction between 
what I happen to think and kind of where the political incentives are. And I, but I think that's really can be kind of intellectually and morally corrupting. Um, and yet it's something that I, again, you probably know better than me, but I feel like it's something that happens in Washington a lot. Uh, yes. The scenario that you described, I have experienced directly and personally many a time. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, uh, on a note, just a quick note for listeners and you, if you're, if you're interested, um, the political scientist Stephen Van Avera many years ago wrote a paper about why states are bad self-evaluators. And I encourage people to look that up. Another thing I noticed with the um, one-year anniversary uh, of our Afghanistan withdrawal is that the generals, uh, quote-unquote, came out once again and, and started talking about it. David Petraeus wrote, our foundational mistake was our lack of commitment. In essence, we never adopted a sufficient, consistent, overarching approach that we stuck with from administration to administration. H.R. McMaster reiterated this conclusion in a similar way, saying something like it wasn't a 20-year war, it was a one-year war fought 20 times. I mean, that all sounds like hogwash to me. I don't think it was a lack of resources or a lack of cohesive approach uh, across time. There was remarkable consistency in our approach, actually, uh, and the results were remarkably consistent as well. It brought nothing but failure, and we stuck with the wrong approach for years. The fundamental problem was rather that we adopted objectives that we couldn't achieve, and we clung to bad ideas that made sense politically, as we were talking about, but strategically were inert. Do you have anything to say about the generals? I mean, I I, no, I agree with you. And it seems to me, I mean, when you say, you know, we the United States um, shouldn't have endless an endless commitment to things that... Um, are not in our interest, right? You know, you know, if, if, if American soldiers are dying and Americans are spending huge amounts of money, um, and it's, uh, and, and, and in a place far away when we have a lot of really urgent domestic issues at home and it's not totally clear that the people want us there and it's really, things don't seem to be getting better. I'm not sure that at that point more commitment is necessarily a virtue, right? I mean, maybe, Maybe let's say theoretically, if America had stayed 50 years, you know, maybe we could have uh, had a better outcome. But I mean, that imagines, it seems to me, you're then imagining America as a more kind of fully imperial country um, than I think we really would want to be. I mean, I think it's it's a good thing that the American people at a certain point, I mean, I wish one this happened faster and I wish those instincts were translated faster start to say to people, the, this, is not, uh, this is not our government acting in our interests, right? And, and, and I think, you know, it's the military um, takes on a mission and I think can kind of put blinders on about its desire to show success for a variety of reasons, maybe some of them very noble and high-minded, you know, um, but that, that politicians need to actually ask the question of whether this is money and 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 lives well spent you know and i think you know one of the points that spencer ackerman and and others have also pointed to is that you know it's an old story to say that it's it's hard to be a republic and an empire at the same time right and that these kind of imperial military adventures have consequences that may not always be entirely apparent at the time but they can really be corrosive i mean i think that you know, Spencer argues, and I think it's convincing argument that we 
probably don't get Donald Trump without the war on terror. That, that, that stirs up a lot of things. And so, again, maybe it's not David Petraeus's job to think that holistically, but it's certainly the job of his bosses and of the elected representatives to whom he answers. I want to go back quickly to the second lesson about listening to voices outside the mainstream. You went over that, but uh, I wonder if you just have any thoughts about the extent to which that's changing in Washington. Um, there's some sense about how it's changing uh, politically over the country as a whole, but I think there's a kind of narrower um, and uh, more specific sort of policy debate and battle going on in D.C. now that at least includes kind of what are now referred to, I think, as restraint-oriented voices, uh, at least a little more. Or maybe there's more political opportunities uh, for the dovish voices to get in. There's politicians in both Republican and the Democratic parties who might sometimes see a political advantage to taking the anti-interventionist route. Do you have anything to say about those changes taking place? Um, I guess I'm not, I'm not necessarily that optimistic about them. I mean, I think you're right that there are there are political forces that have emerged. Um, I think that some of them, though, may have lost some of their political power now that the U.S. has withdrawn. And in some ways, what was giving them the power was actually the fact that America was, did have these troop deployments. I mean, we still have troop deployments, but now that they're kind of, they're often hidden and in such small number that, and I think to me, one of the real lost opportunities was that you didn't have more that came out of in the Democratic Party of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Now, you, I mean, you do have, um, you, you know, you do have another institution, the Quincy Institute, that has a kind of restraint-oriented view, like Cato does. But I mean, if you think about the fact that that Sanders, you know, is by some measure the most popular Democrat in the country and waged a very formidable presidential campaign, when and that, that Biden really needed his support, um, and that I think Sanders was able to shift the, as they say, the Overton window on a number of domestic issues in ways that Biden really adopted a more kind of left agenda, whether you, you know, you like that or not on economic issues. I think on foreign policy, I think much less so. I mean, yes, Biden did withdraw from Afghanistan, but I, th I think that was actually Biden's more kind of internal Biden position. He had taken that view from what we know during Obama too, but Obama, Biden and, 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 Obama and, and, um, Sanders created these joint task forces in the summer of 2000 as part of their kind of coalition. And one of them dealt with climate change, but none others dealt with anything having to do with foreign policy or national security. And if you look at the staffing, right, um, it's much, I think, easier to find people on domestic policy in the Biden administration who are clearly associated with, let's say, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, right? But if you were looking for, let's say, people who in the work in foreign policy in the Biden administration, at State Department, National Security Council, Pentagon, who one would associate with, you know, with a Sanders or let's say, a, you know, a kind of a Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, AOC foreign policy, very, very few. And I think, um, you know, that's partly because these are under institutionalized, I think, that, 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 that there's just not much of a bench out there, you know, um, uh, it, it, that's part of it. I also think because there, these foreign policy operates without a lot, without nearly as much foreign, you know, kind of domestic pressure. It's also, I just think, tends to be 
it tends to be less diverse, I think, and the life experiences of people who tend to make American foreign policy tend to be not reflect the diversity of America or the diversity of the Democratic Party as much as people who make domestic policy does. And I think that has an impact. And so I, I actually find that, you know, the Republican Party, is a, it's, a, it's a different story, right? I mean, you had Trump with all of his just incoherent insanity, sometimes with these kind of dovish instincts, but but also surrounded by a foreign policy apparatus. I mean, John Bolton, for goodness sakes, right? Or, or H.R. McMaster, basically very, very hawkish. And and I don't necessarily, so you have a, a version of the same thing. Not and, and I think the other problem is, and the problem for progressives like me, when we look at that, let's say the Tucker Carlson kind of version of restraint, is that it's so tied up with what looks to me like nativism, racism, um, uh, just uh, utter hostility and disdain for the idea that we should give a shit about people outside the United States, that morally it's very, very difficult to feel like you want to make any common cause with that. Um, and so I find, sorry, this is such a long answer, but I find on the debate about China, you know, which is, you know, I mean, the biggest debate in American foreign policy right now, I I am I worry that actually we we don't really have a situation where people who have, you know, people who want to say cooperation should be the focus of our policy towards China, um, uh, that we should actually be that we bear a significant amount of the blame for the deterioration in U.S. China relationships. I don't see a lot of people in the Biden administration or in Congress saying that. I actually see a pretty, it's just different different versions of how hawkish you want to be. It's like, you want to be hawkish with guardrails and allies, which is like the Biden view, like be really hawkish, but try to avoid a war and make sure we're keeping our allies on board. Or is it, you want to just be super, super hawkish irregardless, which is, you know, like, I think where a lot of the Republicans are. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little dispirited by it. I'm going to take that invitation to go down the China tangent for a minute, because sure. back in, back in May, I think you wrote a piece in the New York Times, which said that the Biden administration's policies vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, quote, are increasing the odds of a catastrophic war. Now that was way before uh, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, and I wonder if you just have any any thoughts on how things have unfolded since then. Uh, yeah, I'm not not well from my perspective, you know, and I I feel like um, look, I don't know. I I think the 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 weird, ambiguous, somewhat dishonest kind of you know kind of set of frameworks that we had um, for dealing with Taiwan. And that the Taiwanese had and the Chinese worked really darn well, you know, for a long time. You know, I think for very good for Taiwan. It's really, really flourished, become much more free, it's prevented a war. Now, I understand that there's no guarantee that those can be sustained indefinitely as Chinese power grows. But it seems to me when something's really been working, right, the default would be you stick with it, right? Um, and instead, the default has become basically back away from it, right? Move, make, move further and further away from the one China policy. Um, and um, in, the, in this kind of weird, with this idea that basically like, we're gonna be, because we just need to focus on, for two reasons. First of all, we need to focus on deterring China, right? It's like, okay, I'm okay we're talking about deterring China, but we should also talk about not provoking China too, right? Because it seems to me, you know, everything you do that, you're, that is, you think is aimed at deterrence can also be a provocation. And when you think about deterrence, you also have to think about, like, would you actually succeed in deterring China as the power balance shifts in their vision? And 
are you willing willing to accept the cost of what a war would mean? And this is like drives me crazy. Like I just feel like so much of the foreign policy conversation is is just kind of like talks in this kind of antiseptic clinical way about kind of like, well, you know, China might do this and we would need to come to Taiwan's aid. Like this is a f-ing disaster of epic proportions. Like th- this is like seriously of all the things to need to worry about. Like, and I like, and there's no, like this could be a nuclear war, right? I mean, like Chas Freeman, Jay Stapleton Roy, I think I mentioned these both like said, China will not back down on this in their assessment, that they would be willing to go nuclear not to lose this war. And I, I think, and I think that from, again, I'm not a military guy, but from what I've seen, like the, the geography makes it really, really tough to, to defend Taiwan given Chinese, you know, increasing military power. So like, I just feel like this, we should talk about this and have a terror, like an extreme fear of the consequences of this war. And that should be like always front of mind when we talk about it. And yet I don't really feel like that is the conversation right? It's more kind of like, well, there's a certain kind of fatalism. Well, you know, if China's going to do it, then like, bring them on. And I'm like, no, like, let's not bring them on. Like, we need to, that's one. And the second is this kind of moralism of like, if you admire Taiwan, which I do, if you believe in liberal democracy, which I do, if you think that China, that Taiwan is a great example of democracy with Chinese characteristics, and China is an example of like, you know, tyranny with Chinese characteristics, and you like one and this the other, then you have to abs- then you have to support every single measure that the U.S. can take, which is pro Taiwan. And this also, I find this is a really seems to me a really uh, doesn't make much sense as a way of take of talking about foreign policy, right? It's like that we that a lot of this seems to be kind of symbolic preening as far as you know, um, as as far as I can tell, and it's not good for Taiwan if they can get invaded. You know, that's the worst outcome for them, right? Um, and it also bothers me again as someone who works on things like Israel Palestine. I'm like, listen, you know, if, if you're concerned about human rights and 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 supporting democracy and the rule of law and stuff, like we we can stop selling weapons to the Saudis. Right. So we can stop selling bulldozers to Israel that they use to bulldoze people's homes. And you know what? That's a human rights win. And we don't risk a war by doing that. Right. So, like, if you're so concerned about human rights and you want to be so moralistic, like, why don't we start by focusing on the things where, like, it's our money and our weaponry that's actually killing people and crushing their freedom. Right. And somehow on those issues, like, their people tend to become a lot less moralistic. And that, it, it annoys me. I sometimes feel like American foreign policy is like the equivalent of a guy who lives in his house. He's beating his wife and his kids. He never liked to talk about that, but he gets really on his high horse about his neighbor who is beating his wife and kids, even though the con- he has a lot less control over what's doing his na- uh, what his neighbor is doing. And if he goes and tries to stop it in his neighbor's house, he's likely to start a war in the neighborhood. Whereas he could start by just not doing it in his own house. I mean, I know that's like, sounds like really kind of childish, but like, it, that's one of the things that frustrates me about the, about, the, about the Taiwan debate in the larger context. No, I completely agree. The hawkish concern with human rights is highly selective. And I was banging on the drum about um, Yemen for years. And uh, all we had to do there was, uh, you know, like you say, stop supporting the Saudis and probably pressure Riyadh to kind of take it easy. And we could have saved countless lives and um, avoided a lot of human suffering. To bring it back to Afghanistan before we close out, what should actually be done? 
Beyond not occupying the country, besides no longer being at war, is there anything else that should characterize our policy towards Afghanistan? Well, I mean, I would be in favor of, of, of making it, of trying to let as many Afghans in as we can. I mean, I think that's a moral obligation we have. And I think that um, it would be good for them. I think we have a moral obligation. I also think it would be good for the United States. I think those people will, would probably, history suggests, do really well here and and strengthen our own country. Um, and um, um, and um, I also think, you know, the Biden, I, we also have this this amount of money that basically we had held that we won't give back to the Taliban. Now, I understand after Zawahiri being there politically, you know, it's it's you could easily see how the Biden administration would get kind of demagogued for giving that money, basically saying, oh, you're not giving it to people supporting terrorists. But um, I think that, you know, we've shown that I think that we can deal with the terrorist threat in Afghanistan, that I think that the threat is actually really relatively low. It seems to me the much more urgent and pressing danger is Afghans starving to death, you know, um, Af uh, and um, that that I, I think that, the, you know, just as I look at U.S. sanctions in a lot of parts of the world, you know, whether it's Iran or Venezuela or North Korea or Cuba, again, I feel like there's a there's a certain perversity in the way these moral arguments are set up in the United States, which is to say, like, if you want to show that you really hate the regimes, like, I hate these regimes more than anybody else, then what you need to do is impose sanctions that actually have zero chance of actually overthrow leading to the end of those regimes. They actually probably strengthen the regimes, but they make the people who are already suffering under these hideous regimes, they make their lives even more shitty. Because now they're not only don't ha not free and they're not, but they also can't often even get the basically necessities of life. Like, and that's the moral position, right? Like, that's the position of like real solidarity. Now there are certain cases where 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 people in a society will actually ask for sanctions to be put on their their government, right? I mean, that happened in South Africa. In some ways, the Palestinians. You know, th th that's a somewhat different call. If you say like, I'm willing to accept the pain. Because I, I think that you can help overthrow topple the government that I hate. But most of the situations where America is imposing these sanctions are now against it are not those situations, right? And so it seems to me it's really, really morally problematic. Um, um, uh, and, and, and so I think that that's another change I would make on Afghan policy. I think I would, yeah, I would, I would release the, I would release the money. Maybe you can have certain kind of safeguards, but basically I just think people in Afghanistan, you know, need at least to be able to be able to have enough food to eat. And right now, many of them don't. Peter Beinart, thank you very much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot.